Good morning, El Paso Bawa Church. Good morning. It is good to see you guys. I hope you're doing okay this morning. Um, if you happen to grab a bulletin on your way in, uh, you'll notice our ongoing events. And you'll notice that most of them, if not all, are on break, uh, including youth group. Uh, the big thing for us this week is Vacation Bible School. We start tomorrow, uh, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., kinder through sixth grade. So if you haven't uh, registered your children, you're welcome to do so today or tomorrow morning. Um, followed, uh, followed by, so at the end of the Vacation Bible School week, we have a, a VBS carnival as well. That's June the 17th from 9 to 12 as well. So looking forward to that. I uh, pray that everything goes well. pray that we would be able to reach kids with the gospel message, the most important news ever, that you could have eternal life simply by believing in Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning I am reading uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and then we'll pray and uh, get started with our uh, worship time. So Proverbs 3, verse 3. And verse 4 says, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Father, we are thankful this morning for your love and just for this opportunity to come together as, as a church, as your body. And worship you and be encouraged by the teaching of your word. We pray that everything goes well this week with Vacation Bible School and that it be encouraging not only to the volunteers but also to the many children that are coming. And just bless our time together. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us for a time of worship? Small for I know the show. 
Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand when everything around me shakes.
Well, good morning. Uh, this morning, I'd like to remind you that uh, we only have children's church for the adventurers class. So that's our younger kids. I think it's kindergarten through second grade because it's communion Sunday. So if you fall into that group, now's the time to go to children's church, right? We have children. Hopefully, before I dismiss you, do we have somebody in that room? <laughs> yes, I think we do. Um, I think Aurora is there today. All right. Good job, guys. The these guys, don't let their stature fool you. They're very mature for their age. They're going to come back if there's nobody in the room. All right. But uh, welcome. Uh, for those of you who are visiting today, my name is Josh Meyer. I'm the pastor here. Uh, they have given me that privilege now for uh, 13 years or so and uh, enjoy being here together with you every Sunday. Um, we need to pray as a body this morning. This past week, we have a couple of our members that have been hospitalized and uh, we need to, need to pray for those folks, both uh, Kevin Huckabee and Clara Coral are both uh, hospitalized right now. Different issues, of course, but uh, we need to pray for healing. These are things uh, that Scripture instructs us to do, um, and it's a, a responsibility but also a privilege and a blessing to do. So I hope that you'll join with me this morning as I do that and leading in that. Father, we do thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for the wonderful joy that it is uh, to, to come before you and to praise your name in song, to study your word, but at this moment also to bring our requests before you. Uh, and Father, we do ask for the blessing of healing for both uh, Kevin and Clara today. Uh, Father, that there would be wisdom in their treatment plan, that it would be identified what needs to be done to bring them back to full healing um, in this life. Father, we thank you for their faith uh, in your Son, by which they have eternal life today, and the comfort that that gives us even as we bring these requests before you. Uh, Father, we do pray for those in our body who have other things that they, they would like for us to pray for and that we may not even know about, but Father, we, we pray your blessing of grace in their lives, of discernment, wisdom, and endurance, uh, perseverance in the things that they experience. Uh, Father, I pray that you bless our time in your word today, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, so this morning we're continuing uh, in First Peter. Uh, we've talked about a number of things in this in this book, um, and we started right with our identity. Generally speaking, epistles in the New Testament begin that way um, in the audience. Right, that's the the basic structure that we're looking for. Who wrote the thing? Who did they write it to? And I'll give you a hint, all of the epistles, all of the letters in, in the New Testament are written to believers. They are written to saints, uh, holy ones, who have eternal life simply by grace through faith in Christ, who according to his own words grants that immediately upon the moment of faith. And so that helps us a lot, right, when we study Scripture to know that the intended audience of these letters specifically, and I'm of the opinion that that's a bigger principle, but we're just talking about letters today. The letters that are written are written to believers to tell them 
things that they need to know while they are living on this earth. The doctrines that they need to understand and embrace and apply in their lives, as well as certain behaviors that they need to stop doing or start doing. And those are important to understand as we go. These are not applications uh, to people that don't share the identity of the believer. So, in other words, a lot of people will get mad at churches like El Paso Bible Church for not going out and telling unbelievers first and foremost to knock off that behavior, to stop doing that terrible thing that you're doing. Do they need to stop doing the terrible thing that they're doing? Yes. How are they going to be enabled to do, stop doing the terrible thing that they're doing? (laughs) By having life by grace, through faith, in Christ's name, by the indwelling of the Spirit and discernment in the Word and the commands that they exert. So we have it in the right order. We have it in the right order when we approach it that way. People that don't share this identity are not going to be able to comprehend or even apply these things. But as choice aliens, people who are precious in the sight of God for the role that they possess and the identity that they possess... That's who we are. That's who Peter is writing to. Uh, People who have a specific precious purpose in God's plan on this earth, who are sojourners, whose citizenship lies elsewhere. That's our identity. It's a dual identity. It is not a dysphoric identity. Please don't make the, the understand the distinction. It is not simply that we are one thing and we believe we're another. Both things are true of us as believers in Jesus Christ. We have a real, actual, dual identity as those who have a purpose in God's plan, life in the name of His Son, by grace through faith, and we have a purpose for living here. That's a real identity. We're not mistaken about that. And as such, we have blessings. We have been born again. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is ready, reserved, and waiting for us, that God himself has prepared, a wonderful truth that we forget, right? We think that we're supposed to muddle around and make the best out of this life that we possibly can. Yeah? You fall into the trap, don't you? Yes? Just thinking that you're supposed to remediate the mediocrity of your present circumstance. Maybe you don't. Maybe I'm the only one that struggles with it. It's a difficult thing to look forward to a future that you haven't seen yet and to be, allow that to be the positive motivation in your life. We have blessings that are, that are reserved for us. We have opportunities. We have opportunities to be rewarded for our behavior as believers in Jesus Christ. Remember that we keep distinct the gift of eternal life and the rewards for living faithfully. Those things are never commingled in Scripture, and we're not going to do that here today. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, it gives you the opportunity to live life in a way, and we're going to talk some more about this today, live life in a way that is looked upon with favor by God and that He rewards. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he, God is faithful and that He is not unjust to forget our work. In other words, He, he is just and He will remember it important. So we have opportunities, we have blessings that come along with our identity. We also have responsibilities, right? Responsibilities. Like that word? 
No. My, I think it was my fault, because we don't even watch this show, right? But what does responsibilities mean? It means you never get to have fun for the rest of your life. It's a meme floating around. I wish that I had never seen it and never repeated it to my children, because now, whenever I tell them they have responsibilities, they tell me that that means they never get to have fun in the whole rest of their life. But that's not what it means. But responsibilities are real. Responsibilities within the body of Christ, within the local body particularly, are real. We have a responsibility, Peter says, to love one another from the heart, to really actually love each other, to really actually know what way and what manner each of us needs another to sacrifice his interests for the interests of another. We need to know that. Yeah? For instance, right, a lot of times, you know, growing up, uh, now we have all sorts of tools to help organize this thing, but when somebody would be sick or somebody would have a baby, they would get 14 tons of spaghetti delivered to their house. More spaghetti than a whole small city in Texas can eat in a reasonable amount of time. That was not the way that they needed to be sacrificed for. They needed other things if they needed anything at all. We're responsible to know what is a wise and discerning way to sacrifice our interests for the interests of another within the local church. We're to love one another from the heart. We are to long for the pure milk of the word. Long for the pure milk of the word. And the way I describe that is that we need to choose not to be bored by the Word of God. You need to choose not to be bored by the Word of God. Um, There are some things that you are going to internalize, understand, synthesize in Scripture over a long period of time that are not going to make sense on, like, tomorrow, okay? There are things that you are going to have to put together from the narrative of Scripture, from Genesis 1-1, all the way to Revelation 22, if I get there before I go to be with Jesus, because this is a big undertaking, that you will not put together any other way except in the way that it was assembled by the Holy Spirit through the inspired authors. And we need to choose to be excited about that. And choose not to be bored. More, that's why the illustration is what it is, right? We have some babies around here. None of them get tired of their mother's milk as newborn infants. Right? That was the illustration. I told you I've been, I've, I'm on a very restrictive way of eating right now. And it is the most boring thing I have ever done in my whole life. It is miserable because I'm a bit of a foodie. I've been cooking since I was in kindergarten. I'm bored to tears with this thing. But infants don't ever get tired of the pure milk that their mother provides, right? When they're infants. Eventually they start wanting food that they can throw. But, you know, that's not newborn infants anymore. We are responsible to keep our excellent behavior, to uphold excellent behavior among the nations. We are responsible 
to do what is right, and I'm, I'm saying this in a particular order, to do what is right in submitting to the government. That was last week. Your obligation, particularly, first, foremost, your absolute priority is to do what is right, to do what is right, and generally to obey the government within its God-defined purview, which is to punish evil and to reward righteousness. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king was the way that section ended, establishing a priority that we have in our life as believers in Jesus Christ. So we're continuing in that section on our responsibilities. So verse 18 says this, servants, be submissive. Hupatasso, by the way, so you know my opinion on be submissive. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, there's a couple of pretty soft translations in there. Uh, you know that I understand hupatasso to mean obey within an established order. Right? That is the word that is used to describe the relationship between parents and children. Right? Parents are never told to obey their children. Amen. Uh, that's an established order. That's a divine institution. Uh, masters are never told to obey their slaves. Um, husbands are never told to obey their wives. Ouch. The modern ears are offended by that more than anything, aren't they? You don't have to worry about your slaves obeying you, do you? That's the established order. That's what God has set forward, and that's the same word here, same idea, in fact. It is carried over from Ephesians, though there are some different words here, kind of making it actually a little more flexible, I think, than what Paul says to slaves in Ephesians. Obey your masters. Now, a lot of times in Scripture, just the word, this, when you see servant, most of the time, the word is slave. The word is doulos. When you see bondservant, it's doulos. It, it's slave. It's slave. Um, in this particular case, that's not, that's not the word. Um, so you've got to watch out a bit. Um, when the word is slave, I generally translate it as slave. This word is oikates. It, it means servant in the way that you understand servant, actually. You, you understand the difference between servant and slave, I think. Yes? Or do I need to back up? Do I need to explain that? Y'all understand that. Uh, a servant has some measure of volition in who he serves, when he serves, and how he serves. And oikates could refer to that. The reason I know that is because that's how Jesus uses it. When he says in Luke 16, he says that no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, love the other. It's a matter of volition. You need to choose. He's saying to those free men, right, Israel, we've never been anybody's slave. Wasn't that optimistic when they said that to Jesus? We've never been anybody's slave from here to now, from Abraham to now. He's saying that to free men who consider themselves free, and he says, choose whom you will serve, free men, because you're going to serve one or the other. 
You need to exercise your volition that way. And that's the word here, right? So he is talking, remember, that that is a New Testament principle, that there is no longer slave or free in your identity. And your dual identity is choice aliens, believers in Jesus Christ who have a particular and special purpose for living in this world. Your freedom is found in Christ, and that is absolute. And he tells them, submit, obey your master. No man can serve two, Jesus says. So it isn't that far-fetched, right? Because people do, want, they do silly things, right, with this authority thing in the New Testament. Um, for many, 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 many years, it really bothered me when a, a, a godly man, faithful pastor um, who loved the Lord and loved me, actually, would constantly refer uh, directly as, the, as if I had a, an, a human king in the world. Do you have a king? I mean, other than Jesus, do you have a king? Do you have an absolute dynastic monarch that just passes monarchical authority to his progeny? No, you don't. You have to do a little more work than saying honoring the king is honoring the president. Don't you? A little more work. Or honor the federal government. This is a little further far-fetched. You have to do a little more work, contextually. You've heard me speak on this before, I think, of that, that concept, and that is that in, in our form of government, you do have a responsibility to submit to the lawful authority of government, but you also bear the liability in some ways of a king for the righteousness of your choices under our form of government, don't you? God is going to hold you accountable for your input as to who you vote for, the same way that he would hold a king accountable for the righteousness or unrighteousness of the decisions. Y'all look confused. Are you confused by that concept? We the people, that's where the Constitution vests the authority in this country absolutely in, and that makes you liable for the choices that you make, and that is a little bit different than the New Testament context. It elevates the standard, not lowers it, right? But this isn't that far-fetched because the word isn't doulos. We don't have to push it through one of those ricers. You all use a ricer and make mashed potatoes or cranberry sauce. To push it through a ricer to form it then in our own image, we have the nature, we understand what servants are. Because a lot of people do the same thing when they read slave and they just say employee. That's not the way that works. That's not the way that works. Somebody please tell all the people out there who are drawing a paycheck that they're not slaves to their employer because they're out there proclaiming a vast quantity of stupidity all over the Internet. Slaves don't get paychecks, right? So you've got to work a little harder than that. But this is, this is closer. This is a servant, somebody who can exercise volition within the context of this structure, 
someone who is subject to this rules of a household, the structure of a household, the word is actually despotes. In a form of despotes, you all know the word despotes, despot, we come from there. We have a particular meaning to the word despot. Somebody who's in control, has authority within a, within a defined context. One of the words related to that just refers to a housewife, somebody who's in charge of the house. My wife used to give that to me when I would argue with something that she wanted to do in the house. She'd say, listen, here, I am the despotase of this house. Because she had a little Greek too. So she would Greek me like that. And she was right. That's her realm of authority, certainly. But within that realm, within that structure, they're supposed to obey the established order with all respect. Now, that is different than the way we say something, right? With all due respect. You ever heard somebody use that? With all due respect, you moron. Does, does something respectful ever come after with all due respect? No, not anymore. Maybe it did at some point in our history, but now it means I think you're stupid, but I still got to deal with you. With all due respect, dummy. This doesn't say with all due respect. This says with all respect. You're supposed to have a reverence for the institution and the authority that exists while you're under it. Not only to those who are good and gentle, not even to those who are just good at their job. Or those who are gentle about it, who don't hurt your feelings. Now remember, this is somebody, at least, it could be somebody who is a slave. It did refer to a household slave sometimes, but also to people who chose to serve, a steward, an employee, serving someone else of their own volition, you know, you might ask from your context looking backwards, if he had a choice, why, why would he do that? Why would he choose to work? This actually says crooked. Unreasonable is kind of a softy translation too. Crooked. For a crooked boss. If you had a choice. This is, this is particularly pertinent, I think, in our culture today. Why would you choose to work for a boss that is unreasonable. We've got some guys here who are old enough that they know the answer. The young guys are probably confused. Anybody? Why would you choose to work for a crooked boss if you had the ability to choose otherwise? Maybe because you need a job. And it may, throughout the human history, it has not been so simple to just go find employment somewhere else. Most nations, most peoples, most empires would be embarrassed by the, the amount of wealth that is simply laying around in dumpsters in the United States. We have forgotten that we should be thankful for provision 
the provision of employment for what it provides rather than my feelings and happiness. Everything in life is not designed to take the place of Jesus in your life. Are you supposed to find absolute and entire fulfillment in any employment you have in this world? Are you supposed to try to put that in the place that you're supposed to have Jesus? No. Never. Even if you have an unreasonable boss, you should value it for what it is. You might need to put up with an unreasonable boss because you need the money. That, that concept is foreign, I think. You can just stay home and somehow eat and fill up your gas tank and still drive and live somehow with no, no visible means of support. So when you heard that phrase when I was a kid in San Antonio, when you say somebody has no visible means of support, it meant they were selling stuff that was illegal. (laughs) They have no visible means of support. They probably belong in prison. But that's not really what it means today. Uh, We just have a system, right? Sometimes you have to do what you have to do, guys. And if you've never worked for an unreasonable boss, you haven't worked very long. The worst one I had was at a church. (laughs) The absolute worst one at any of his jobs was at a church. Some of y'all may know a little bit of that story. Ministry is no exception. And you guys know that I have usually worked two or three jobs at a time simply to meet my obligations to my family in the last 20 years. Three years that Priscilla and I have been married. You want to up the ante if we're running into unreasonable bosses, just work two or three ones at a time. In fact, I kind of work for myself, sort of. Guess what? I still work for an unreasonable boss. He makes me work my tail off two extra days a week, climbing up ladders and sweating in a bee suit and all sorts of junk. You just can't even get away from it, even if you work for yourself. So you're going to have to suck it up occasionally, guys, and do it for the benefit that it provides instead of how you feel about it. And that's what Peter is saying. You might have to keep the job and put up with the boss and serve faithfully because you need the job and you need the money. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is honorable. It is honorable. It is one of the most honorable things, young men, that you can do to get up every day and go to a job that you despise for a person that you despise because you love your family. Yeah? Now, Scripture allows for you to change that situation, doesn't it? Paul tells the Corinthians, if you were called by a slave, don't worry. This is 1 Corinthians 7.21. You can check me out. If you were called while a slave, don't worry about it. But if you can be free, rather do that. So you can change, grow some skills, learn some things, get some experience. Do that. Scripture does not teach that your station was set in eternity past and that you can't change it or improve. That doesn't. That's not true either. 
Nothing wrong with taking advantage of that opportunity to exercise your will to do better. People always had a, a hard time drawing the line here, right? It's not surprising. They can't tell the difference between a king and a constitution. They can't tell the difference between a slave and an employee. And, and then they have a hard time drawing the line where you're supposed to draw it here. Uh, what does this look like? Serving faithfully in your job that you don't like for a guy that you wouldn't have coffee with. What does it look like? Well, the opposite, I think we, we have a great illustration, actually. I always struggle to find illustrations because I didn't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to talk about too small of a cross-section of society because then you, then you become the enemy, right? But in our society, it's estimated that 50% of the workforce is currently quiet quitting. Have you heard of that term, quiet quitting? They'll take the paycheck, but they're going to sit on their hands all day. They're not looking for advancement. They're just blobs. What my mother probably would have called a bump on a log. Anybody's mother say that? Okay. At least we have somebody normal in the room. Sitting there like a bump on a log. Willing to take the check, but not willing to actually do what the job requires or what the boss says to do. 50%. That also happens to correlate, actually, to nearly how many people work for the government in some way or another in the United States. But uh, we won't go there today. The quiet quitting, mailing it in, right? Drawing the checks, but not doing the job. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter why, I don't think. It may be peer pressure, but that peer pressure, I think, does come from entitlement. Entitlement. Uh, They feel that they are, uh, the idea of this universal minimum wage, is that what they call it? They're proposing. So people, without advancing their skills or advancing their education or God forbid, advancing their work ethic. Expect to advance. Or to be treated as if they are advancing. It's actually, it's a deception to be treated as if you are advancing and not actually advance. And if the boss doesn't agree, bump on a log time. Uh, don't let that be you, guys. We're not going to fix the culture around us, but you can distinguish yourself. Remember, that's part of the responsibility, to keep our, our behavior excellent among the nations. One of the ways that you can do that is by not engaging in that particular cultural phenomenon of, of quiet quitting, of just taking a check and doing the absolute minimum required. Literally, most of those people are not getting fired just because of lack of options for replacement. Do the job, fulfill the function, and I'm not going to, uh, you know, spout rainbows and we don't throw skittles from the pulpit here at El Paso Bible Church uh, as much as people would like that sometimes. Do people still eat skittles? 
We used to say Skittles when everybody ate Skittles and stuff, and now everybody's like pretending that celery is meat and something else is Skittles. I don't know. But as I said, Scripture allows you, if you can do better, if you can make more money and do the job well, if you advance your skills and your education and your work ethic and you can do better, go do it. But do that job well too. It's pretty simple. Now, why should you do it? As I said, we don't toss Skittles from the pulpit here. A lot of people will tell you that it will magically fix your problems if you simply do what God wants you to do in your job. That if you serve faithfully an unreasonable boss in a job you hate with a guy you wouldn't drink coffee with, that if you do that, then it will get better. Huh. No. It does not get better. Necessarily. Maybe it will. It might. Don't count on it. Because that's not your motivation. I mean, should you do it because you're an optimist like that and you think that it, once your ability shines forth and your faithfulness and your loyalty shines forth that your situation will get better? No, you don't do it for that reason. You do it for verse 19. This finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What is the very real likelihood of you serving faithfully in a job that you don't like for the sake of finding favor in God? It means it might cause you to suffer more, to sorrow more. And remember, you might need this job. You probably will need the job because the way we're doing it now doesn't work for very long. I mean, it might, but it may very well induce suffering and sorrow. Things might get better, but the reason we do them is not so that it gets better, but because when it doesn't get better, it finds favor with God when we endure. The word for favor here is charis. Some of you may know that that is the word we normally translate as grace. And some of you have a, a theological understanding of the word grace that maybe doesn't incorporate all of the uses. In this case, you receive favor from God because of suffering faithfully. What does that mean in this context? Well, it means some measure of credit. What credit is there? You like credits? You ever take accounting? Credits are the good side of the ledger. Everybody likes credits. Yes? You log into your bank account and you want to search for something, right? And you can click a button usually at the top that says you just want to see credits and the list goes... Right? But you like them. And you go and you click the button that says debits and it goes... You can't even scroll to the bottom. It's like finding my birth date on the little scroll things anymore. You like credit. Smile. It's good favor. It's good to do things that bring favor from God that He smiles upon. 
But he says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? It may look the same on the outside, but you're trying to find favor with God. And so if you fail to obey in that context, if you quiet quit and you receive suffering because of it, maybe you lose the job that you needed, maybe you fail to get promoted because you're not worthy of promotion, you suffer that when you didn't have to, any number of things. That does not find favor with God, and you get what you get, and no whining. Y'all ever say that to your three-year-olds? I say it to 30-year-olds, and 22-year-olds, and 65-year-olds. You get what you get, and no whining if you do that. There's no credit applied there. But... If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You are not doing it because you are a pushover or a doormat. Right? You're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it because it finds favor with God. We have a number of people here who own their own businesses, guys. Who does the guys, who do they own? Who do they work for? I call this the John Wayne principle. Right? You, you, there, I think it's McClintock where he explains who he works for. He's the richest man in all of New Mexico in the one movie. And he says, I work for anybody who wants a stake in the United States. You ever work for an unreasonable customer, guys? Even in my business, I am the bee wizard of El Paso. I get all sorts of weird credibility because I whistle and the bees go in the box, or so the story, the myth goes, and I still find unreasonable people. They're mostly in New Mexico, I'll admit. (laughs) Not so much in Texas, but even there. You are going to have to deal with this if you are going to fulfill your obligations in this life, particularly men. And you will have to suck it up for Jesus. Hug the cactus. Whatever you want to use. Johnson here says hug the cactus, and I say suck it up for Jesus. You're going to have to do that, guys, or you will not be able to fulfill your obligations in this life. Even if you are cantankerous and start your own business because you don't want to work for anybody, you still work for somebody. And everybody you work for, you're working for the Lord, for his sake. And we want to do the things that are creditable, which are profitable, the things that God blesses, that he looks with favor upon in this life. Because the alternative is stupid. Why would we want to do anything that doesn't please the Lord? in our choice alien life that we have. That we have simply by grace, through faith, because Christ took the place that we should have occupied on the cross. That's how Mark says. He died in our place, not in some theological, uh, ethereal, existential, I mean like actual, 
That was actually our place that we should have occupied for our own sin. And He took that place for us. So that simply by believing in Him, today we could have eternal life. Tremendous gift. And one of the things He asks in return is simply that we would obey a stupid boss. Seems like a good good deal, right? Our responsibilities. We're accountable for that. But this morning we're remembering that sacrifice. We remember it every Sunday, but we're remembering it in a particular way that Jesus instituted um, in the night in which he was betrayed, as Scripture says. When he took bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. And this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And so if you have life in his name, we ask that you do join with us in this remembrance and that celebration. And uh, we'll do that shortly after. I give you a few minutes to pray if you need to, to confess any sin that you know about in your life, or to just spend time in silence, whatever you choose to do. And then I'll ask the men to come forward. Men, if you would come forward.
For I received from him, from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you now stand with us? We'll dismiss with a... Song, last verse. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of 
Sunday. See you next week.